As we pick up where we've left off in this series called The Alternate Reality, the definition of reality is the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. As we've been in this, we've been trying to examine something, is that the reality in you and I should have, should share, is not the reality of this world. Because what this world has is things that we can see, things that we can touch, things that we can hear, things that we can feel, whatever. And it's not that those things don't exist. The question is, should we be moved by it? In other words, what truth matters more than any other? It always comes back to the word, God's truth. That's what it comes back to. What God's word said matters more than what the people of this world say, what they think. How they feel. In a world full of feelings, and and it's all about emotion, we have to be completely in line with Scripture. Or we will quickly fall prey to an emotional trap that the enemy is setting. And so as we've gone through this, we've got to understand something. You and I were never called as born-again believers to try to get along with the people of this world. Why is that? John chapter 17, verse 13. It says, Now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. Who said that? This is Jesus talking, right? It's in red. That's obvious. Okay? Jesus is talking to whom? God the Father. He's praying. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He says the world's hated them because they're not part of it. You know, when you live in small town America, you hear these things called cliques. And when an outsider moves in, and they'll talk about, it's like, oh, you know, I'm not from here. I'm not talking about Rockport. I'm just talking about other places. Doesn't happen here, of course. You pick any town you want. I'm not from here, so, you know, I can't do X, Y, or Z. We are not of this world. This is Jesus' words, right? See, we have to establish our basis. We act as if this is all we see. We don't look at the greater reality of what God has given us, and the world to which we come from. All of that is important. All of that is key, because what we have is a church today that walks around defeated, a church today that walks around and sounds and looks much like the world. As we have established, as we've been going through this, is you and I are created in the image of God, which means we're not talking about hands, feet, and eyeballs. We're talking about that we are His imager, His representative. Do you realize that the world has their imager and their representatives? And do you realize that some of those people have infiltrated the church today? And do you realize that some of those who have infiltrated the church has influenced those who would be true born-again believers? The methods of which we approach ministry today has changed drastically over 50 years. We have become attractional in our process and try to draw people in. We try to get people to come. If they just get here, then maybe they'll hear the truth of the gospel and maybe they'll give their life to Christ. That is like getting in a boat and saying, here, fishy, fishy, fishy. 
I've done my fair share of fishing. That's never worked. And believe me, I've tried it. I even was told by a pastor friend of mine many, many years ago when I was in high school. He said, listen, God gave us dominion over the fish. Just tell them fish to come. You know what happened? They didn't come. Apparently I had the wrong bait. You see, we've become attractional. We've got to build bigger buildings, nicer. We've got to have certain kinds of music. You've got to have a certain vibe. We need coffee shops. Now, I agree with that part. All right? I mean, I'm not alone here, right? I mean, wouldn't it be cool if we had our own scooters? If for no other purpose, to just have better coffee? Like, isn't that of the Lord? I'm pretty sure that was a prophecy. But anyway... What I'm saying is, is we do these things. I mean, over last Easter, there was a church up in the Omaha area that were giving away iPads and $500 cash and all of that for all the new people that came in. Trying to do anything to draw a crowd. They were giving away all these glorious prizes, wouldn't that be? Some of you are like, that sounds awesome. (laughs) Yeah, well, it was there. I did. Now, here's the thing. Is that how Jesus did it? No. No. Is that how the apostles did it? No. Can we compete with that? Not in that sense, because we don't need to. Now, is their heart wrong is the question. That we don't know. We can't judge their heart. They may be well-intentioned, just misguided. So we have to be careful there. But being created in His image means something. When we are born again, we are recreated into the image of God. We are no longer a citizen of this earth. But where are we a citizen of? We're a citizen of heaven. What comes responsibility and expectation? If you look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says, Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought also himself walk just as he walked. Now, here's the thing. We are talking about those who say, I know him. Were there people that knew Jesus at the time of Christ that didn't know Jesus? This wasn't a a question of or a statement of, well, yeah, I met the guy. Because you know who met the guy? A lot of the Pharisees. A lot of the Romans. Pilate, the dude that sentenced him to the cross overall, knew him. That can't be what it's talking about. You see, when it says, I know him, to know him and make him known, isn't to like, hey, I want you to hear about this guy. It is the belief in, the belief in Jesus, the faith that he is the Son of God, the one who died for us That atoning sacrifice that took care of it. That is what he's talking about. So when somebody says that I know him, yet they don't keep his commandments and they don't walk as he walked, what are they? They're a liar. Do we see that in the church today? Absolutely. Because what have we done? We've changed the commandments. We've changed the standards. Because we are no longer as a people on a truth quest, we're on a happiness quest. When you're on a happiness quest, you will only seek those things that are comfortable. I literally, I mean, I get messages all the time from people, and I've got friends in ministry around the world, and I'm hearing about the things that people, that, like people risk their life to go to church in other parts of the world. And some of us, we don't risk our weekend to go to church. But it's so important to them to be gathered together in the body, to be equipped and ready and prepared to go out. And they risk their life by talking to their neighbor and their family and their friends, and they do all of this stuff. But we don't share that burden. Why do they do it? 
Would it not be easier and would it not be justified for them to just kind of go undercover? Be incognito. Yes, I'm a believer in Christ, but if I make that too well known and I talk to too many people about it, I may die. Could you not justify that? Absolutely you could, and yet they don't. Do you know why? Because they walk just as Jesus walked. That's the difference. You see, it's not a set of moral behaviors of do's and don'ts. Those are implied. There are things, because we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. We'll come back to that here in a little bit. But to walk as he walked means to unashamedly share the truth at all times with love, of course, and compassion and mercy. And to do the things that he did. The things that he did are things that you and I can do. There's nothing he did that is not at least possible for you and I, even to the point of walking on water. Now listen, I'm not saying you should go out there and just try that, okay? I'm just saying. It's at least plausible. Because he said, greater works than these will you do because I go to the Father. I send the Holy Spirit. You will be endued with power from on high. Everything that Jesus and the apostles did should be an everyday expectation in our lives. And yet, it's not. That's a problem. You see, what we've established is Jesus didn't arrive on this earth. When he was born, he didn't just pop out and say, yo, Messiah here. No, he grew in his understanding. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51, it says, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men. It means he wasn't born with all knowledge and all of this stuff. He didn't perform a miracle until after that he was endued with power by the Holy Spirit. None of those things happened. He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. And he grew in favor with God. If he is all-powerful, all-knowing on this earth as he is today, as he was before, you don't grow in favor with God. You are God. See, that's the part we have to understand, is that I know it gets hairy, and it's a little bit like squirrely in the, in the old brain box there, but he stepped down from his Godhead to become a man. He lived like a man. He was tempted in all ways like you and I are. It's not a temptation to God. Is God ever tempted to lie? Is God ever tempted to steal? No. Was Jesus. Yes. Why did he cry in Gethsemane? God, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. That's a temptation to be disobedient to what God has said. But if he's just God, he'd be like, that's eh, no big deal. Think about that. We've got to get our heads around this. He grew in his understanding of who he was. He grew in his understanding of what the will of his father was. He grew in his understanding of how God worked. He grew in his understanding of the expectation that he can have of God. He grew in his understanding of the authority that God had given him. And how did he grow in that? It was scripture. It was always scripture. To do what Jesus did, we have to think like he thought. We have to see how he saw. What will determine what you see will determine what is real to you. When you look at an over, uh, overmounting situation, and if you look at it through the lens of this world, you'd be like, ah, there's no way to overcome this. 
But when you look at it through the lens of what God has said, there's no way to stop it. We have seen some of these examples. What was the first one? How about the 12 spies? 12 of them told by God to Moses. Moses says, all right, y'all, go out, look at the land. Go look at the land, see what we're dealing with. Are they, are they just camps or is it a fortified city? What, what kind of terrain are we dealing with? Who are the people that we're dealing with? Go and check this out. They were gone for 40 days. They all come back with a fig of grapes or a, a branch of grapes that took two people to move them. Okay, so they must have been back, big. And as they gave the report, they said, listen, this is a fortified city. But man, you should see this stuff. Look at these grapes. This is awesome. But there's a problem. There are giants there. They're everywhere. We're grasshoppers. We cannot do this. Two of them said, uh, yes, we can. Now, you're sitting here reading this, and here's part of the problem. If you grew up in church, you grew up in children's church. And when these stories are stated, we often dumb them down for the children. We should not do that. It's a mistake. Every time you see Noah's Ark painted on a nursery wall, do you notice all the smiles by the animals? I've never seen one of those animals smile. Do you think Moses was having a good time? Not Moses. Noah, that guy. Moses probably wasn't having a good time either. He's just like, oh, look, we're just on a cruise ship with all these animals. Where'd all the poop go? Who's bucking the stalls? I mean, think about that. There's eight guys there. Who's doing it? If Noah's really in charge, it's not Noah. He's the foreman. That's right. Delegate. But think about that. These guys with Moses have just come out of bondage in Egypt. They watch 10 different events take place against the gods of Egypt. And just like God had said, when it seemed impossible, he brought them out. And how did he bring them out? Oh, well, he set up this thing. He said, here's what you're going to do. This is the last and final straw. You ready for this? I want you to go get your lamb. I want you to sacrifice that lamb. You make sure it's perfect. I want you to examine it. Can't be anything wrong. Bring it in your house. I want you to spill the blood. I want you to cook the entire thing. I want you to consume the entire thing. I want you to take that blood. I want you to put it on your doorpost. Now, there's an angel of death coming. And everything that's firstborn, that thing's going to kill. But if you just take this blood and you just put it on your doorpost, you're going to be just fine. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, come on. Anybody with half a brain... New. But here's the thing. They did it. And they watched it happen. Now, it wasn't the killing of the lamb. It wasn't the consuming of the lamb. Because if you did both of those and you got every step right and that angel came through, he's going into your house. It was the application of the blood. Without that, they are subject to it. But because they were obedient and they watched and then they watched Pharaoh say, okay, you can go. We're going to let you go. So they go. And then they're being chased because Pharaoh changed his mind. So they're being chased to come to water like, "Uh uh-oh, now what? Then they watch God split the sea. They go through it. The uh, Egyptians follow them. It closes. They're dead. We're free and clear. Pretty awesome. I will never doubt God again, right? Until we go to the land. How could they? You see, there were two different viewpoints. What God said, what I see. Which one mattered most? Only what God said. Has that changed today? 
Not a bit. Do we act like what God said is true? You've been around the last couple of years, the answer to that is a no. Because what I clearly see in Scripture is that God is a God that heals today. It's always His will every single time. And how many ministries that have healing ministries around the country, around the world, that have healing rooms where people who are sick come to be ministered to, close their door, when a virus happened? Does that seem counterintuitive to anybody else? That's a problem. That means we don't truly believe what God said. Now, I'm okay if that's true as long as we recognize it and we grow from it. Because we've got to be honest with where we are. We can't talk faith up here and live faith down here. We've got to be growing. How did Jesus grow? He grew in favor and stature and his understanding of God. We talked about that with the water, how the first miracle was the water to wine, and then it was the calming of the storm, and then he walked on it. That was pretty, pretty sweet. Then you saw, as we talked last week, the whole story with David and Goliath. Now, here comes a giant, ready to kill everybody. Here comes a boy, bringing some cheese. Why did he go? He brought cheese, y'all. Cheese. If there was no cheese, David wouldn't be there. He brought cheese. The kid that brought the cheese took down the giant. Think about that. Everybody else was afraid. This was the land that they were to be in. And he knew that God said, anybody who comes against me, God, you will take out. If you keep my commandments, you'll be blessed. What did he see? What did God say? He had no problems. Stepped up there, hit him with the rock. As I told you, there's always more to the story. He cut off his head. He carried it with him back to Jerusalem like a trophy. You think he wore it around his neck? That'd be kind of cool. Anyway. Sorry, squirrels with knives, all right? What I'm saying, guys, is we have got to get to the point where we see in this world through the lens of what God has said. We cannot settle any longer. Let me show you another one. Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to go somewhat fast, okay? These are all stories you guys know. These are all stories that you've read, and the problem is as we teach them or we read them or, or they're taught in Sunday school, they're taught as if they're stories, almost like, what is the moral of the story? And you know that's true because you've heard who's the Goliath in your life, and it's always a sports analogy, unfortunately, okay? If your football team goes against a team of giants looking to kill you, suddenly that's an appropriate analogy. Aside from that, it doesn't work. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its width 6 cubits, he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now let me pause for a minute. Understand what's going on. They are in captivity, they being the Israelites. In captivity at this point. Babylon, massive kingdom. Massive. Okay? Nebuchadnezzar, he's the boss, he's in charge. Creates an image of gold. This is not an image of Nebuchadnezzar. It is an image of gold, and you're going to see that coming forth. He calls all the leaders of all the area, which takes time, because it is a vast land. They have to come in. And he comes to do what? Dedicate the image. Do you know the word dedicate? Always remember this. means Hanukkah. That is the Hebrew word. Hanukkah and dedication. When they dedicated the temple, they Hanukkahed it. 
I need more phlegm. I can't do that. Let's go on. Verse 3, so the satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that the king, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O people's nation, languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So here we go. We've got a government decree to all the people. So there were people of Babylon. There were people of other nations, and you have all of Israel in captivity at this point, okay? This is for everybody, that when you hear the sound, when the music begins to play, at that point, you will fall down before the image of gold, and you will worship it. And if you don't want to, that is your choice. Here is your consolation prize. We're going to kill you. Sounds great, doesn't it? No. Verse 7. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, so it starts, and it says, all the people from everywhere fell down. You know what all in Hebrew means? It means all. That means all the Israelites. Okay? Keep that in mind. Verse 8. There at the time... At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now, why did they say that? You made a decree and then they reiterated the decree. You've got to understand how this works. A king... Once he decreed something, it was sealed. He could not overturn it. There was no way to overturn it. They're reminding them, reminding the king of what you said. Here we go, verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. So let's stop. Okay? They're bringing an accusation against three men. That is their Babylonian name. If you read chapter 1, you will begin to see why they have been promoted up. You'll also see their Hebrew name. They have not paid due regard to you and do not serve your gods or worship the gold image. So you notice what they did here. They set it up. You remember the decree. Now, these men who you care about because you have promoted them do not do this. Now, this implies something here. You notice they didn't bring an accusation against the Jewish people. They brought an accusation against three Jewish people. What does that imply? Everybody else bowed down. Right? Three men stood. You notice Daniel's not here for this, right? Okay. Don't get caught up in that. He was probably traveling around because that's what he did. Three men that we know of were the only three men that stood up in the face of intense pressure. Would you agree with that? Could you imagine if that happened today? Let's just say here in old Rockport, Missouri, something similar takes place of which everybody is required to bow down. Now, we know what Scripture says. So should a born-again believer ever do something like this? And the answer would obviously be no. But how many of them would and would justify it? A lot. 
Okay? Similar situation. It's easy to read this and be like, oh, yeah, you know, I know what I would have done. Right. Okay, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image you have made good, or I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who would deliver you from my hands? Now here's the story. All right, he's giving them a second chance. Most kings wouldn't. But obviously he cares about it, but he's mad. He said, all right, you're by yourself. When you hear the music, if you bow down, we're good. But if you don't, here's the consequence. Now, was the consequence against them, in a sense? Or was the challenge laid down? Who is the God who would deliver you from my hands? That's a gauntlet being thrown down. Now, why didn't they not do it? Why was this such a big deal to these three? It would have been easy. And most people would justify it. Listen, just do it. You don't even have to mean it. Just go through the act. Like, let's all get out of here. A lot. Why was it such a big deal? Well, look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 12, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him, and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. What did God tell them? You should never take, never bow. You should never go after any other God. Other gods existed. Nebuchadnezzar just made one. You shall never do this. So now they're faced with the situation. What I see, what's best for me now, and what God said. They made a choice, right? He said that if you bow, we're good. If you don't, you'll burn. Go back to verse 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, look what he said. This is confidence. We have no need to answer the king. You don't not answer the king. Why did they have no need? He wasn't their king. They answered to a higher authority. God had already decreed what was right. Their circumstance, their opinion in that matter makes no difference to what truth is. We have no need to answer you. Now what happens? Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from that burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand. That's boldness. That's confidence. Now, this is mistaught all the time. Let me correct this. And some of you have already heard me talk about this. Oftentimes, you'll hear this taught in the sense that if you throw us in the furnace, God will deliver us from your hand. But if not, 
we will not bow and worship your gods. Let me tell you something. Just think logically for one moment. If they die in the furnace, they can't worship the gods. They're dead. You guys see that? That's not what he's saying. Nebuchadnezzar gave an ultimatum. We have no need to answer you in this matter. So if that is the case, what is that? If that is the case and you choose to throw us in the furnace, because we're not answering, we're not responding to you. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He's able. But is he willing? He will deliver us from your hand. There's no lack of faith, no lack of belief. Why do they believe that God will? Because they're being obedient to his commandment. But if not, if not what? If you choose not to throw us in there, just so you know, we will not serve your gods. That is the response. It has no, it's nothing to do with whether they knew how God would respond. God does not move in mysterious ways. He moves in predictable patterns. They were obedient to the command of God. Therefore, God will be faithful to his word. What passage? Deuteronomy 28 verse 1. It says, now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God blessed shall you be in the city blessed shall you be in the country blessed shall be the fruit of your body the produce of your ground and the increase of your herds the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl blessed shall uh, shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out the Lord Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessings on you and your storehouses and all to which you set your hand. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself. Just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his way, then all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and the produce of the ground in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you the Lord will open to you his good treasure the heavens to give you the rain to your land in the season and bless all the work of your hand you shall lend to many nations but you shall not borrow and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail you shall be above only and not beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you today and are careful to observe them so shall not turn aside from any of the words which I I command you this day to the right or the left to go after God, other gods to serve them. Why were they confident? Because they were being obedient. God said, if you do this, then I will do that. Does God lie? Does God waver? Is God mysterious? The answer to all three is an overwhelming no. They knew that they couldn't bow their knee. And they knew that as a result of that, that if they try to put them to death, my God will deliver us today. What they saw was pretty hairy, but what they knew is what mattered. It's not how they teach it in Sunday school, is it? Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. 
These men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Now, you notice how it makes it a point to talk about how they're still clothed? They oftentimes wouldn't be. They would be naked. So why did they bind them in all of this stuff? That's called kindling. Verse 22, Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And the king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And he answered and said to the king, It's true, O king. He says, Look, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like son of God now you've got to understand something here when the king makes a, a, a decree he's not the one that executes on him many other people go and do that he's sitting there looking over his work when it says that he was astonished we don't take that high enough to a high enough degree he's sitting there shocked he rose in haste I mean he quickly stood up he's looking at this thing he's like wait a minute did we not throw three guys in there were they not tied up? Like, did somebody screw up here? Am I wrong? Did that? There were three, right? There were not four. We tied them up, right? We didn't just kind of shove them in. And they said, it's true. So what is the result? Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. You notice a change in attitude all of a sudden. Who is the God who can deliver you from my hand? Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own therefore i make a decree that any people nation or language which speaks against anything amiss against the god of shadrach meshach and abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made in ash heap because there is no other god who can deliver like this then the king promoted shadrach meshach and abednego in the province of babylon now, you notice he made a decree again. A decree cannot be undone even by the king. What just happened? You see, this is three men who were not moved by what they saw. They saw the situation through the lens of what God has said. And they said, we have no need to answer you in this. You throw us in, God will save us. You don't throw us in, you change your mind, we're not going to bow. And just like we read before, then all the people of the earth will know who God is, the God of Israel. He was convinced. He's the most high God. You see, you've got to understand something. These stories are so powerful when you read them correctly, when you read them in the right context, when you get the, the mindset of what a young Jewish boy would have reading these stories. Picture 
These aren't, we, we treat these as almost like, you know, in a land far, far away. Once upon a time. This is Jewish history. And young Jesus was reading this. When he read this, why was he so confident? He grew in stature. He grew in his understanding. Because every time, God was faithful to his word. There was never a doubt. You see, the things of this world need to get small. Very small. What we see is so much less significant than what God has said. All that matters is what God has said. Because He's faithful and His word is true. It doesn't matter what's the next thing they throw at us. I don't care what the economy is doing. I know that God meets my needs. I know that God quickens my body through the Holy Spirit. I know what He said. I know that He says that believers lay hands on the sick and they recover. I know that. So I'm going to do that. I know He gave me a mandate to go in all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do what he said, and I'm not going to be moved by the flavor of the week that our society and our culture is throwing us at us and saying, well, if you believe in Jesus, then you must believe this. No, 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 no. You don't get to chase happiness and create Jesus into the image that you want him to be. God has revealed his nature, his character, his will through the pages of Scripture. You eliminate Scripture, everything else then about God is just an opinion. Might be right, might be wrong. But it's because we have something of which He has chosen to reveal Himself through that we can look and say, this is the standard. Jesus didn't come in here carrying a different law, a different expectation. This is the standard. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where do you set your mind? You see, you might be seeing a situation now, but your mind needs to be where Christ is. What has God said? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. All authority has been given to him. It's the name above every name. Do you realize that we don't just say these words? Do you realize when we sing these songs that these are coming from the pages of Scripture? And it's not just something that we just sing or it's got a nice melody line. Like, oh, I like that harmony. Those are all great things. But we are declaring God's goodness, His faithfulness, who He is. Well, that's where we've got to get. We have treated the fruit of the Spirit as if it's some stepping stone to righteousness. And if we, we can just do, if I could just be a little more patient. Let me give you some advice. Never pray for more patience. It will be tested. You might have children. Okay? Matthew 6, says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. All of those things are the monetary Necessary things for you to live on this earth. What do we seek? The kingdom of God. What do we seek? His righteousness. Everything else is a byproduct of seeking Him. The fruit of the Spirit is a byproduct 
of being transformed into the image of Christ. No different than the fruit of the flesh is a byproduct of being born and living on this earth. We don't teach our children to lie. They figure it out on their own. We don't teach them to hit one another. They quickly figure it out on their own. We don't teach them to take the last Oreo. But I tell you, they figure it out on their own. You see, y'all, this is what I'm saying. It is not something we are trying to obtain. We've got to quit trying to do the right thing. We need to be the right thing. Created in the image of God. His imager, his representative on this earth. That is not Sunday mornings. That's every day. Every day we have got to do that. Whether at work, whether we're hunting, whether we're playing golf, whether we're with friends, whether we're with family. Every day we seek first the kingdom of God. You and I are on the earth, but we are not a part of it. We are sojourners. Let me show you just a couple more quick verses, and I am going to, I'm never going to get these notes. My notes are too long. Y'all want to go home eventually? Okay. Let me finish this up here, this part. Mark chapter 10, verse 23. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. Do you know why they were astonished? Because rich people had it all together. They didn't need nothing. Just like we do, we equate wealth with blessing. I don't know if you know this, but there are prostitutes that are solid living. Doesn't make it right, okay? God's hand is not upon this blessing this. Jesus answered again and said, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches? Trust in what? What do we trust in? God. Seek first the kingdom. The rest will come. To enter the kingdom of God is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I know I've talked about this. That was a doorway that the camel would go through. You have to strip everything off. And they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who can be saved? And Jesus looked down. With men it is impossible, not with God. For with God all things are possible. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. So what was impossible? Nothing is impossible with God. But they were astonished. Well, who can be saved then? If the rich guy doesn't get in, how can any of us get in? What are they, where are they at? What plane are they on? What we see. Not what God said. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. He found something. He said it was a treasure in a hidden, uh, hidden in a field. This is the kingdom of heaven. He gave up everything to just go get that one thing. Nothing else mattered but that one thing. Look at verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. What is this like? What are they making an analogy of? The kingdom of heaven. How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? How do you no longer become a part of the kingdom of this world, but translate yourself into the kingdom of heaven? You receive what Jesus did for you. The sacrifice he made for you become what we call born again. And when you find it, it says that they go and they sell everything for this one thing. Because nothing else matters. They're not making a financial point. They're making a spiritual point. When the things of this world are so big, you take off your spiritual lenses. But when the things of this world grow strangely dim, Christ's light burns brighter in your life. 
the problem we have today, part of the problem, is that we're walking into realities, but we are moved by the carnality of this world. We're not moved by what God said. Yes, we are to a degree, but we're nowhere near where we need to be. We are not at the point where every situation we respond with what God has said. We'll pick up on this next week. We'll eventually get through this part, I promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is true. Your promises are yes and amen to him who believe. Lord, we stand on your word. I thank you that you are quickening us and opening our eyes and softening our hearts, Lord, so that we can see who you are through the lens of Scripture, Lord, and that every way we respond to any situation in life is that would, what has God said? That we are no longer moved by the things that are going on in this world, the ugliness, the decay, the immoral behaviors, none of that, Lord. We're not going to respond in carnality. We will respond supernaturally. And so, Lord, I think that you're opening up doors of opportunities for us each and every week. And we can share your love, mercy, and compassion with somebody. And, Lord, I thank you that as we move, you're moving with us. And we are your temple. And everywhere we go, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God, have a great week.